Hello, Rich Bolas here. A big thank you for downloading the Dad Mindset podcast, where we explore different perspectives on fatherhood. This episode, I talk with Arnie Phillips, who is a clinical psychology registrar who specializes in treating children with ASD and ADHD. We delve into quite a few different topics, but I need to stress that the content of this podcast doesn't constitute, nor should it be considered, specific psychological advice for you or your child. As with all medical, physical and mental health queries you may have, the best place to start is with your family GP or your child's paediatrician. That being said, I hope you enjoy this chat with Arnie. Arnie Phillips. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. No, I uh, really appreciate the you taking the time to uh, uh, meet with me today and uh, and to discuss what you do. So to start with, can you explain what it is that you do? Yes. So I'm a uh, clinical psychology registrar. Um, I'm working part-time with paediatrics and part-time with adult children. Uh, sorry, adults. Um, oh, we're all we're all children. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's the um, objective of my treatment with adults is to make them find the child within. <laughs> hey, I, I definitely need some work there as well. So maybe you can help me out. Oh, great! And uh, I wanted to say first off as well, Arnie, the person that put me on to you is actually one of my friends, and she has a son with autism uh, who's been treated by you, and she says you are like the child whisperer. So I don't know what you think of that, but she she's just been blown away with how the amazing work you've been doing with her son. Um, that's, so it, it's great feedback, but I'm sure for every child whisperer I've got out there, there's probably a child aggravator that parents would label me as to. <laughs> no, but, <laughs> but I it's think good to hear. I, I think the, one of the things she said is obviously her son, you know, totally had the wrong picture of what you would be like because. You know, you're you know, a big, strong guy like this. You know, beard Squeezed and, into the seat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I think the expectation of a, uh, a psychologist was sort of totally thrown out the window when I met you. But can you explain a bit about your process with obviously the, the drawing therapy that you do? Hmm. Yeah, so I guess the approach that I take, and I'll often tell parents this is psychology by stealth because the, um, I, I think the situation that children will find them in when they're receiving treatment is very foreign the typical situation that they kind of expect is sitting in a room talking about their emotions you know just sitting back in a chair or lying on a couch that a lot of people would expect when they see a psychologist um so i try and make the experience for children as normal as possible um so me and a lot of or most of the other therapists that i work with it's about playing games with them and then working in the treatment with them. Um, playing games, for me, I love drawing pictures. So it's about rolling out the butcher's paper, just having it on a table, heap of textures, and just talking with them, drawing pictures, and working the therapy in that way, rather than therapy being the first thing that we focus on. And then, you know, if child isn't comfortable then we might work in a game to calm them down but yeah i try and take that i guess yeah psychology by stealth love it under the radar <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> <laughs> and so with your the the drawing that you do you mentioned that some parents aren't even you know aware that their children are into drawing at all so yeah yeah so the uh first session that i'll have um for a client is often with the parents just to understand the um diagnosis some of the symptoms or their behaviours that they're presenting with um, and the goals that they might have, trying to understand the the developmental history of the child, um, the complex behaviours or the challenging behaviours. Um, and obviously you don't want to talk about that in front of the child. It can be you know difficult and confronting and when they're just sitting there hearing about all the things they've done wrong or what their mum and dad are struggling with. So We'll do that just with the parent and I also make an effort to find out what it is that the children like to do, what they don't like to do, what they're good at, just to make sure that the session isn't a negative session or only gathering that negative um, feedback. So I'll find out in there what the children are interested in because I like drawing. I'll ask, do they enjoy drawing? Do they enjoy colouring in? And you know, I've had a number of parents who say, no, they're not into that they don't like it 
um, which, you know, kind of takes the legs out from under my <laughs> approach. Oh, bugger. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So maybe I'm not for you. <laughs> but um, I've found that for the majority of kids, we'll, I'll get them in there, I'll roll out the the butcher's paper, which is my number one therapy tool. Um, it's either butcher's paper or you know, and we'll just start drawing. I'll start drawing and the kids will pick up textures and, you know, within the first session we've filled a metre or two of butcher's paper with pictures of dragons or whatever it is they're interested in and they love it. So, well, they say they love it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but do, do they come back? <laughs> they come back, yeah. <laughs> I think that's yeah. definitely a, a A technique that I use is to sit with the parents and say, all right, when do you want to book in the next session? If the kids say, I want to come back tomorrow, I want to come back next week, to me that's a good thing. <laughs> if they say, no, I don't want to come back at all, then, you know, maybe I've missed Rethink the mark the in that session. Yeah, <laughs> maybe we will kick the footy around. <laughs> uh, it's interesting because you, when we were chatting on the phone as well, you mentioned about sitting across from someone being quite an alien thing as well. Yeah. Like, can yeah. you go into and that a bit more? I think, well, I'd say even for adults, it's such a foreign thing to sit there and sit opposite someone um we get used to it because we're always doing it in you know meetings or interviews or anything that we tend to do at work is just sitting at a sitting in chairs opposite a desk with a desk in between us and that type of thing so i'd say adults are probably more accustomed more used to doing that but for kids how often do they sit down with an adult in a room and talk about their emotions it's just a very foreign thing for them to do and it's tough to expect them to do that um so i try and avoid that or reduce that as much as possible reduce that foreign um approach for them and so that's why i kind of make the effort to just make it like a classroom at least you know that's what they're experienced that's what they're used to make that as much as natural for them as possible and then it's a bit easier for them to open up and talk about their emotions or you know what is it that makes them angry what is it that calms them down yeah and so that comes out sort of sitting next to them at a table for example if you've got the butcher's paper out yeah yeah so it will be next to them and there's you know a lot of research that says sitting next to someone is the best way to get information out of them or to get into that deeper conversation um you know we're sitting here looking out over Bass Strait I presume that's Bass Strait out there um (laughs) Sitting looking out over the ocean is um, often, you know, it's, it opens us up to talking at a more deeper level. Um, there's research that suggests that, you know, who knows, it could go back to the, the uh, caveman days when they're wandering around look, hunting for days and days. Um, it may be a bit more natural to us. Um, but you find that, you know, sitting at the footy, having a beer, sitting at a bar, having a beer, um, sitting together on a road trip when you're going for miles with a mate, conversations do get deeper. Um, and I think it's just more natural and easier for us to have that discussion when we're not necessarily always making eye contact, that intense kind of, it's almost an interrogation yeah. face-to-face. <laughs> um, and so... Or like a job interview situation, yeah, that's which right. probably triggers a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe the next job interview I'll have, I'll just say, can I just sit next to you? <laughs> you walk can we in, go on a road trip? Yeah, 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 you walk in and just like squeeze in between them. Yeah, yeah. So, hey, Don't mind me. <laughs> Break out the butcher's paper and just start drawing with them. <laughs> You're in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yep. it's, a, it's a great point though, because um, one of the previous guys uh, that was on the show, Jason, he talks about dealing with some of the children at school that were you know, struggling. Yep. And he found that the only way to talk to uh, one guy in particular was to actually walk alongside him mm. and, and or actually be looking out of a, out of a balcony in the same direction into yeah. the distance. Yep. Whereas in a classroom or an office, just really tightened down and, and you know, rejected any sort of conversation. Yeah. But if you're moving forward and facing the same way, yeah. it, he just opened up and would talk and has, yeah, quite yeah. a an eye-opener for him and and a tool that he obviously employs with, um, you know, situations that, that warrant it. Yeah, yeah. And I've found that with a few teenage clients where it can be tough sitting in the room, even if you've got, you know, all the 
tools and techniques that have worked in the past, like draw pictures, play games, whatever it is, they can still find it really difficult to talk and open up. Um, so obviously with the parents' permission, we'll go for a walk around the block, just get them outside walking, and they really do open up. It's amazing. Wow. Mm. Okay. And um, actually, I want to do a quick segue because the thing you mentioned earlier about smoking yeah. – <laughs> Because that 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 made not me that think. We of, smoke. Well, not, not that either of us smoke, but but that whole <coughs> stepping outside can actually be part of a, a calming ritual, can't it? Yeah, it can be calming. It, um, so we were talking about you know that stresses at work. It can break the connection from where you are and what it is that's stressing you, and you know just I guess at a subconscious level, takes you out of that stressful situation and can be a grounding technique anyway. Um, and a lot of the routine of having a cigarette is a very calming, grounding, you know, reducing it, reduces the feeling of anxiety or the symptoms of depression, just going through that, the different routines that people tend to go to, so especially think, these uh, days when you have to go outside to smoke. It's a good thing. People are helping yeah, smokers yeah. that way. Because it, it sounds like it's, it's just, it's more so the routine of getting out of your desk, going for a walk downstairs, outside, yeah. You know, going through setting up whatever it is you set up, like putting tobacco in. There's a very fine motor control. Yeah, yeah, that, that process. Very, the tactile grounding. focusing on lighting, <laughs> very focused attention away from other things, yeah. and then taking a a draw. So, if it wasn't for the fact that <laughs> it kills you, <laughs> it would be wonderful. <laughs> yeah, maybe we need to introduce some other type of tobacco. Just, just straw. Yeah, have an empty straw. Yeah. Just go suck on this outside. <laughs> that could be our ticket out of here, Rich. Let's get on it. <laughs> Hey, I'm all for it. If it, <laughs> if it helps people relax. I, I must say, though, I think ritual is really important for me anyway. Like, I don't think it's healthy for me to drink six cups of coffee a day, but I love getting up to the coffee machine yeah. and going through the routine and ritual of making a coffee. It really breaks um, or transitions between tasks for me. Yeah, yeah. And, and it sounds like that's a similar sort of thing. I think it is, yeah. And you know, for me... I probably drink way too much coffee too. But it is that, I think it's the routine that you go through, but it's also knowing the routine that you're going to go through and, you know, the anticipation of it, almost treating that as a reward for the activities that you're doing. So um, having just come through several years of study, I had to almost train myself to get used to that, going back to the study, sitting at the desk for hours on end and learning um and so i think for me knowing that i just need to get through this chapter or i just need to spend this half hour here and then i'll go and make myself a coffee and knowing i've got that routine yeah to go you've got that, that reward yeah, yeah yeah i think it was douglas adams that explained to a reporter once the way he actually got all his writing done when he was writing hitchhiker's guide and so on was he would reward himself with a cup of tea yeah but he couldn't make a cup of tea, which he desperately wanted to do until he'd written a page. Yeah. And so that was the reward at the end. And, it, and you know, it, I guess it goes back to operant conditioning, doesn't it? You know, yeah. that, you know, focus on positive feedback. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, rewarding the behavior we want. Whereas if you go and make the cup of coffee before you do the task, it's like, oh, I'll just give myself that, that treat before I get into it. That undermines everything, doesn't it? So you <laughs> it just got to yeah. have that discipline. Although for me, I had no discipline when I was studying. So I'd go into our study at home that has a you know window looking out onto the garden. I'd sit there for maybe five minutes and think, I'd really love a coffee. So <laughs> get up and go and make myself a coffee. I'd come back I think actually I wouldn't mind a juice so <laughs> back out to the kitchen get myself a juice actually I'm pretty hungry go and get something like you know some biscuits or something and I think actually I wouldn't mind something sweet so I'll go out and get something sweet and then I'd spent ages trying to find the right playlist to listen to while I was studying trying to organize everything get everything <laughs> neat on the desk and then I'd look outside and there'd be that annoying weed so I'd go out and do some gardening as well. There's, so, there's books on the shelf that need organising. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So finding just that procrastination, finding everything else that I could do before I studied. So I, I was able to identify, this is you know my positive spin on it, um, identify all the things that just distracted me when I sat down to study and I'd just bring all that in. So when I was getting ready to study, I'd make myself a copy, 
uh, coffee, make myself a tea, get a juice, get a glass of water. Line it all I'd up. I'd get savoury snacks and sweet <laughs> snacks. I'd have a study playlist there ready that I'd got um, prepared. I'd have the whole study desk looking nice and neat. I'd try and shut the window or shut my distraction from looking out at the weeded garden and just make sure, all right, now you're set up for the next two hours, Arnie. Study. No excuses, Arnie. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's it. Get out of this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And sometimes I would. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. it, it's fascinating stuff, isn't it? I mean, is that what sort of drew you to this? Like, our minds are just... I feel yeah. like we're just scratching the surface with how these things work. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we're way off. And, you know, we're probably way off. We'll find out in 100 years' time. But it is fascinating that to get anything done, we do need to have a better handle on what's going on in our head. Mm. I mean, how much do you think is autopilot? Oh, I'm completely guessing. I'd say autopilot would be at least half for me. I'm, I'd switch into autopilot. Um, and I was probably at that more than 50% when I was um, working in my prior career, just not necessarily being challenged, just knowing that, you know, from a work perspective, is the routine that I need to go through. Um, and yeah, operating like a zombie, just switching into autopilot, not kind of thinking of any new way of doing anything. Um, I knew that that's how I was kind of operating. Like I'd, I would, quite easily you know come up with a process here's a routine here's a technique of doing something just do it that way all the time um so i'd make an effort to find a new job fortunately i was in an organization so, where sorry I just could. to backtrack a bit so what industry were you working so in? i was working yeah. in it um working doing strategic planning um process mapping enterprise architecture um so that type of work or the organisation I was in, I could kind of work with my bosses at the time to do different types of jobs, basically, which kept things fresh for me in that respect. But, yeah, I always found that after two or three years, I'd just lock into a routine and be like, all right. Thumb in bum, brain in neutral. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Time to move on, Annie. Yeah. And, and so why psychology? It's always interested me. So, um, yeah, had a 20-year career in IT that was originally just going to be six months, ended up being 20 years. Um, but throughout that, I was always listening to podcasts, reading books. It's just psychology is just something that fascinates me um, from a you know neuropsychology perspective. But um, any kind of branch of psychology was just interesting to me um in my downtime we've got a couple of acres so i'd be out every weekend you know gardening or mowing lawns or something like that always have a psychology podcast playing um i just loved it and then my sister-in-law she was studying psychology um and just i guess having those conversations with her really piqued my interest as well um so I got to the stage where I had had uh, um, a lot of long service leave. So I just decided I'm going to work or work full time, study full time, do my undergrad in psychology. Um, there's a number of pretty high hurdles that you need to pass to get from undergrad into honours and then honours into masters. I just thought I'll keep going until I can't jump a hurdle. Um, and here I am, six, seven years later. <laughs> I've managed to jump them so far. That's great. And you're loving it now, obviously. Absolutely love it. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. No regrets. <laughs> and because you've just come out of the mill, like in the last few years, I mean, still going through it to a certain extent, like obviously you're at the pointy end of, of where the industry's at. Like how much has things changed over the last sort of, I don't know, few decades? Um, I think psychology itself has become... I'm going to say mainstream. Um, psychology has struggled to get, I guess, a level of respect in the sciences. Um, a lot of science is about, you know, doing the research, finding the evidence and coming up with a theory that kind of explains what you've found. Um, it's very tangible, you know, from a 
getting out of my knowledge area here a bit, but, you know, from a physics and biology and chemistry level, they are very practical sciences. Um, so psychology has worked, I guess, over time to be accepted as a science in that respect. Um, I think, so that's it, I guess, from an academic perspective, from a um, general public perspective, I think it's become more accepted as um, a discipline and accepted as a tool that people can help. So there's the emergence of the um, positive psychology, proactive kind of treatment that people can pursue as well. Yeah. So I think um, going straight into, like you've gone through a couple of different clinics and done different training, but you've ended up where you are now, working with children to a large part, I understand. Now, what's the, the area that you work on most with children? So I um, I did make an effort. I always wanted to work with kids. Um, and so when I came, when I graduated from master's, I um, chose to apply for clinics that specialise with children and adolescents. Um, the one that I've ended up in works with uh, children or clients presenting with autism uh, spectrum disorder and ADHD um, predominantly. Also oppositional defiance disorder. Uh, clients have been kind of referred to me. Being a male psychologist, I think a lot of uh, adolescent males get labelled with uh, oppositional defiance and um, the perception is that I guess a male psychologist will be someone that they can relate to a lot more as well. So I'm getting a few of those referrals too. Um, anxiety and depression, school avoidance, those types of things. But the clinic um, that I'm working at, Think Psychologists in Geelong, is um, predominantly ASD and ADHD. Yeah. And what exactly are ASD and ADHD? What, how would you describe them to you know, average Joe on the street? Yeah, so for, well, I guess ASD is going through a lot of... Um, uh, Metamorphosis at the moment. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, the DSM, the Diagnostics and Statistics Manual, has that uh, psychologists and psychiatrists kind of follow in terms of mental disorders, uh, has rebranded uh, autism to ASD or a number of disorders of kind of come under that autism spectrum disorder. So it's a spectrum of presentations. Um, those presentations are typically in relation to um, behavioural, social or communication interactions, um, emotional awareness, sensory deficits or sensory challenges for children. Um, yeah, so it's, as I say, it's a spectrum. There's a spectrum across those various factors or elements um, and different children can have different levels um, across those factors too. So Can it be like a completely really mixed diverse. bag? Yeah. So yeah. You can have like three from bag one, three from bag two, two from bag four. Pretty much, yeah. And so it can... I remember reading a quote like, if you've met someone with autism, that's all you can say. You've, you've met, met a person a with, person autism, with yeah. autism. That yeah. you, There's no sort of... Uh, similarities generally because there's such a complex it, overlay. It is a complex, yeah, yeah, and which makes you know the treatment very complex as well. Yeah, and yeah. I suppose one of the biggest parts from a parent's perspective is how do you actually even diagnose it, or what are the early signs that a parent can pick up on? Um, so it can be, I guess, a deficiency or a um, regression in the the communication, the interaction, so not just verbal communication, but um, body language, uh, facial expressions, they'll often just, children can um, not be responsive to any kind of facial expressions that a parent might be making to the children. Um, they could be sensory, from a sensory perspective, they could be hypersensitive to, say, sounds or lights or touch. Um it can Even be surfaces like I've heard grass yeah, and yeah. you know sand and things like that can also cause havoc. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. A lot of um, a lot of my clients will want the tags cut off 
their clothing because that just annoys them or um annoys the shit out of me too. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Maybe you're undiagnosed. <laughs> um yeah, so there's I guess a number of different um areas that it could be present in. It's often it'll be uh diagnosed by specialists in the area, so you know, paediatricians, psychologists, speech pathologists, OTs. Um there's I guess a very complex diagnosis that they'd need to go through yeah what advice would you give someone uh, sorry just to backtrack a little bit because my friend that actually you know recommended talking to you she said that one of her biggest regrets was not actually finding out that there's someone like you that could help her son six years earlier yeah they've gone through a lot of heartache and so what advice would you have for a parent if they have like an inkling that something's not quite right um ask around Early intervention is um, the research shows that that early intensive intervention can help almost um, teach children to understand that social, you know, the social interaction, understand the speech pathologists that we're talking about, you know, putting things in their thought cloud or putting things in the speech bubble, those types of things like, um, and looking at people's um, non-verbal communication, understanding those types of things. Um, so yeah, there's all, all different areas that treatment can focus on and help children. The earlier the intervention, the better. Um, but having said that, for any parents, I kind of say, don't beat yourself up if you haven't done that early intervention. So with with early intervention, are there like particular, what are the particular things that a parent would generally say if they have noticed something, Arnie? Is it generally about, ah, oh, just not responding, just a little bit different to the other kids, not playing with other kids? Yeah. yeah are those so the usual sort of cues? It is. Um, so there'll be a lot of uh, individual play, so they won't necessarily do it. Um, parallel play or interactive play with other children um there'll be possibly um a regression in their language so words that they had learned or words that they had been using they'll stop using words um there could be a very focused interest a very you know specific interest in the titanic or specific interest in the richmond football club which you know, it's understandable, but... <laughs> well, that's a bit contentious. <laughs> um, but, yeah, very specific interests in certain things and lack of awareness in the fact that other people may not be interested in those things, in having a two-hour conversation about the Titanic. Or um, Richmond Football Club. Richmond, well, <laughs> most people would be interested in that. So. <laughs> no, that's a good good point, though, because... Uh, I know certain parents that they've said, oh, my, my child really loves the Titanic, just gone super deep on this, everything about this. And no, I mean, that's wonderful in, in many ways, but if it if it starts overlapping every area of life, is that what you're thinking? Yeah, yeah. So that, and that, that could be a, a that flag. Could be a flag, yeah, yeah. And it is, it's difficult to kind of pick out one thing and say that's a flag because this is a spectrum and, you know, we we're talking about the factors that people that can present along that spectrum so it could be symptoms of AD, uh, ASD but it could also just be someone who's very interested in the Titanic that wow okay <laughs> <laughs> this is hard or the I Richmond thought. Football Club <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> well um and I suppose like the uh, as as children grow up uh, with autism, it can be, there's so many different ways it's a benefit as well. It's, it can be a double-edged sword, obviously. Like, yeah. uh, I've heard, you know, stories of, you know, certain Silicon Valley companies actually even, you know, actively recruiting, you know, certain um, people because of that ability to focus. Yes. So it, yeah. it shouldn't always be thought of as a, a negative no, you know, exactly, there can be yeah. huge positives yep. from having that ability to focus, which I think is pretty lacking in most people these days. We're so distracted. Yeah. It's probably a superpower in many respects. 
Absolutely, yeah. And um, I did some work while I was studying with a um, colleague who was doing research in the area of um, Aspies at Work is their um, page on Facebook if you want to look it out. But uh, individuals with ASD, typically the diagnosis of um, Asperger's um, and their experience in the workplace um, and for them, the, their, I guess their observation or their experience has been it's very difficult to get a job um, because employers may, I guess, in the interview process, they'll, the interviewees or the applicants will kind of struggle to perform in the interview process. Probably the worst possible is, situation to be in. Yeah, yeah for, for anyone. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> um, yeah. And it, it's such a foreign... Um, situation to find yourself in and it often again for anyone it assesses your skills to sit in an interview and answer questions in a way that pleases someone else not yeah Yeah. the job that you're going to be expected to do um and so for i remember doing a workshop with um the aspies at work and that was the big thing that came out of it is that you know you're asking us to sit in an interview and perform on an area that you're not expecting us to work on when you actually give us the job and pay us. So, um, whereas, as you say, their skills are amazing in the right job. Um, the I guess for a lot of them, they have that ability to pick up on patterns and understand the best way of doing something or to consistently follow a particular process. They'll know these are the rules, this is how we do it, and that's what gets the job done. Are there any other particular job areas that you think uh, people with Asperger's would generally be attracted to Possibly, using their skill set? Yeah, possibly the, um, I think the IT industry probably attracts a lot. Um, you mentioned the tech companies, but the whole approach of coding um, and working out, you know, understanding the coding language and then working out the best way for the machine to understand that language and do it most efficiently. Um, that is possibly an area that, um, you know, would attract a lot of people with those skills. Um, I think... it's re- Sorry, it's really interesting because in many respects, I think of coding as almost like another, lang- another language, like translating, yeah. communicating uh, yeah. in another language, whereas it sounds like communicating in a verbal language or you know um picking up a body cues and stuff is something that would actually be a real struggle whereas when it's just yeah. code pure language i guess with very strict rules that's something where people can excel yeah and that's an interesting point i guess it's maybe coding is a language but it's all 100 percent necessary there's no superfluous words that no are kind guff. of thrown in there yeah <laughs> whereas you know, we were talking before, if mum enters the room and I love mum, mum already knows that. I don't need to let her know. I don't need to announce that mum's walked in the room. Everyone can see it. Um, whereas, you know, from a coding perspective, if you're putting a command into the computer, you're doing it for a reason. You're not just saying, you know, the mouse is positioned in the top left corner if no one really cares where the mouse is. You don't need to code that. <laughs> Whereas, yeah, I think one of the things that as a parent we'd pick up on is like you walk into a room and, and you're not even acknowledged. Yeah. It's like, oh, why doesn't my child acknowledge me? And it's like the child's think, well, I don't need to acknowledge you. You, you know you're there. I know you're there. So <laughs> I acknowledged you three years ago. That's enough. Yeah, you wouldn't write that into code. No. <laughs> if no, you were exactly, coding. Yeah. 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 That's a given. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so maybe we've got it the wrong way. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but... um. What are the what what are the sort of advice would you have for for parents then or, or society as a whole to understand about these conditions? Um, I'd say focus on the skills and the strengths of the individuals um, because they do have a lot of skills and strengths beyond, um, I guess, you the typical individual um, and. I know that a lot of clients or some clients can kind of struggle with a diagnosis as well because they've got this label and they see it as a negative. Um, 
I think the label isn't the entirety of the person. So, yeah, they have that label, but there's other things that we can, um, I guess, identify in them as well. What are the what are the things that, as a parent, we should actually do when a friend of ours actually says, oh, yeah, my child's been diagnosed with autism? Because I, I think there's a real stigma still. Yeah. I mean, do you have any advice on, on that? Cut them some slack. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Acknowledge that it is a challenge it, or it can be a challenge. Um, and there'll be different situations that will be challenging for different individuals. Um, so cutting them some slack when the, they do have a meltdown um, and also being, I guess, being a bit flexible, putting a lot of the control over onto um, the family and just let them know, you know, we'd love to go out or we'd love to catch up for a meal, but you choose the place or where is it that we do it? Um, Yeah, because I think there's a lot of factors or variables that families will need to take into account um, because of the, the sounds or the lights or whatever it is, smells, uh, the feel of the seats in the restaurant, all those types of things just need to be considered, I guess. So, yeah, being flexible and cutting them some slack. Yeah. Are they, what, is there a way that you'd suggest doing it to use like the correct terminology even? Like, is it a case of just saying, hey, okay, um, you know, we, we want to take, go out, catch up with you guys for, for dinner or something? Is there a place that's appropriate, not appropriate? What sort of, I don't know. I'm I'm struggling here to sort yeah. of. I, I think I would struggle. I've got a bunch of friends that have children with autism, and I feel still I'm not geared up enough to to actually have a helpful conversation. If you know what I mean. Yeah. With them. And I guess the step before having a helpful conversation will be having an open conversation. Just talk with them and say, I don't know what language to use. What language do you prefer me to use? Should I be asking about? You know, if we want to catch up and have dinner, is the location important or is it just about knowing that we have to be there at five o'clock and we have to be ready to walk out of there at quarter past five a meal is going to be very short um or is it a matter of knowing that um breakfasts are better than dinners or weekend is better than through the week or whatever it is um or is it just a matter of putting the onus on you and say i want to have dinner we want to have dinner with you guys but it's all up to you. You just call when it's going to happen. Like, yeah, having that open conversation about what things should I consider when I'm talking with you or when we're looking at involving your child in what we're doing. That's great. Thanks, Ollie. I've <laughs> <laughs> got some extra tools now, great. <laughs> it's um, one of the things that um, a, a, another friend's working on at the moment is um, things like sensory playgrounds and things like that what what environmental things do you think we as a society should start looking at changing or improving on so there's a um i guess to specifically pick it out there's a few um restaurants within geelong that are turning lights up or turning lights down or turning music off they're actually doing that for um asd clients um there's, there can be um, cinemas. They have the, you know, the crybaby or something like that. Sessions with cinemas where people can go along. Yeah, where parents can actually cry. go it's to okay. the cinema. Let it happen. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think there's a number of those. I guess specific services that are changing or organisations that might be changing. Um, from a sensory perspective, probably in playgrounds, there's. Um, you know, public playgrounds that are being a lot more integrative in terms of the um, equipment that they put in there. Um, not just for ASD, but people with, you know, physical disabilities or intellectual disabilities as well. They're, um, I guess, being more accessible. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if that's answered no, that, the question. No, or if that I've gone definitely does, off yeah. Topic there. I, I wasn't aware of the uh, restaurants in Geelong, actually. That's quite exciting. Um, yeah, and I think they're more... You know, if you ask and arrange it, then something can be done. And sure, it's not all restaurants, but um, I forget where I saw it. There was a post that I saw recently where 
um, it's uh, adults with ASD had um, notified the restaurant just the fact that you know there were there was a social group coming um, and let them know what their I guess their sensory needs were and the restaurant accommodated. Great. Yeah. One of the things that comes up as well when having conversations with a parent that's just discovered is um, that their child has autism is, oh, well, you know, I've had to do so much research and really get my head around it. And are there any particular resources that you can recommend or a place where a parent can start if not so much their children, but say friends' children have autism or um, ADHD or something like that? You know, where would you say to start? There's actually a book that I've just started to read called The Autism Handbook, um, which is written by a couple of parents of children who were diagnosed with ASD. Um, and the purpose of that book is to uh, communicate anything you need to know about ASD, um, not at any um, overly detailed level, but just giving you all the information that you might need. So that... Um, for me, as a you know therapist, has been a great book, um, and the intention for that book is primarily for adults or parents of children with that diagnosis, um, or friends of families who have recently got that diagnosis. So that's a great book. Um, there's a podcast. I can't think of what it's called. It's maybe the Parenting. I'll quickly look that up. Um, but the, uh, yeah, the podcast is very handy. Shows. The Parenting Spectrum. Um, and that's by a couple whose son is on the spectrum. Um, and they just talk about their challenges, which has been great to hear. Um, just as someone who works with um, children with an ASD diagnosis, um, just to kind of hear the very human side of their challenge as well. That's kind of helped me um, understand from the parent's perspective, you know, I'll see them for an hour every fortnight or an hour every week or an hour every month and I can give them a heap of homework, but they're also seeing a heap of other therapists who are giving them homework. They're also doing all this other research that they're trying to understand and get their head around this diagnosis as well and they're trying to work keep their social lives going keep the rest of the family going as well so yeah, yeah it's, no, no that, mean feat yeah exactly that's kind of <laughs> just keeping the wheels understand that is yeah. enough as a parent yeah yeah that's right overlaying other challenges yeah yeah so that that podcast has been for me it's been very interesting and valuable yeah Oh, great. Are there any other, like last thoughts, you, you'd have for parents around these sort of conditions, Arnie? Um Yeah, cut yourself some slack as well. <laughs> um, Probably a broader not, message to all parents yeah, there. Really. Yeah, exactly. Like, um, not being a parent myself, I don't know what it's like to raise children, but I know what it's like to not raise children. I know that 24-7, my time is my time, you know, within reason. I know that parents don't have that flexibility um and i think particularly for parents of children with um any kind of diagnosis they'll be very critical of something that they do wrong or the fact that they're not doing anything right um or that they may have caused it or that they're making it worse i think they need to accept the fact that 24 7 they're a parent maybe one hour last week they did something wrong but for the rest of the time, they've done been doing it right. So, um, yeah, I think it's important that parents kind of cut themselves some slack. Focus there. on the positives. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> got Absolutely. it. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, I'll take that one on board. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> awesome. This has been really great fun, Arnie. Um, just before we close off, um, just wanted to touch on your your drawing because mm-hmm. you mentioned you set yourself a challenge last year. Or was it last yeah, year? A couple uh, of years a few ago. Years ago. Yeah. Can yeah. you just tell us a bit about that? Because that was fascinating. Yeah, so that was um, what I called Draugust, and I'm sure it's out there. I just couldn't find any ideas on it. Um, but basically it was drawing a uh, picture a day for the month of August. So I did that with a friend. We came up with our own 
um, topics or themes and just drew the pictures, um, which for me was great. I guess uh, for me it was about knowing that drawing and sketching really helps calm me down. That's my you know self-care technique. Um, and having that task of doing it with someone, um, ha- having the onus on me every second day of coming up with an idea of something to draw kind of helped me. Kept you honest. Yeah, kept me honest. Um, and also knowing that they were coming up with something every alternate day was good as well. It took that pressure off me too. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I just enjoyed that. It was challenging, but it was rewarding to kind of get to the end of August and having drawn a picture every day. Um, since then, I think I started that in around 2015. I've done that for um, every August. And last year, I stupidly, whilst I was trying, I think it was, yeah, last year, trying to finish Masters, <laughs> um, I not only did draw August, but I did sketch timber and Inktober as well. So for three <laughs> months, I drew a picture every day. Um, right. Which, yeah, in hindsight, it was um, probably not the smartest, but it was rewarding again. <laughs> I didn't do it again this year. <laughs> it was the reward my after doing the work, not not before. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Oh, great. Now, I think um, the with, uh, with the sort of Drawgust, Inktober, Sketch Timber, is that something you're going to continue doing? Is it something you've noticed a real progression? With your, your drawing as well, it's really pushed you uh, to an area that you wouldn't have got to normally. Yeah, it's, um, I guess it's progressed creatively. So in terms of, you know, just the skill of drawing, I've gotten a bit better. Not as good as my brother still, but <laughs> um, I don't think I'll ever be that good. But so I think, you know, comparing those early drawings to what I'm drawing now, I think it has evolved and gotten better, but I think I've probably been a bit more open than honest with mentally how I'm going um, and communicating that through my pictures. Do you think it's reflected in the drawings that mm. you do? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, well. yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and I think by doing that, I have always, I guess, struggled to communicate emotionally or talk about things yeah talk openly about things but being able to sit down and draw it and get it clear in my own mind about you know what is this emotion that I'm feeling how can I draw that that's then helped me talk about it with um family and friends as well so yeah that approach has been awesome oh wow Um, Um, oh great (laughs) yeah and I think doing it has um you know friends who have kind of seen it it's helped them open up and talk about their feelings and kind of yeah it's been that you know are you okay day it's almost like a a touchstone a visual version yeah. of that is just you know someone can say yeah i'm feeling that too i have those i wake up at 3am every morning and have those thoughts too so yeah it's been i guess normalizing wow i'm going to have to give it a go yeah <laughs> that's well, our challenge next year Rich. yeah Let's yeah do it. it's it's on <laughs> Uh, so, um, when's the next one? It would be, is there, uh, are there any others we can squeeze in before Sketch Timber? Uh, yeah, there'll be something. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. Maybe, yeah. Penuary? <laughs> yeah. Let's okay. Yeah, let's do that. It's on. <laughs> so, the, and this, that reminded me of one of the, the things we did discuss before as well, was with parenting, you know, trying, there are 50 things you could try, yep. but you might try the the danger is trying all of them, but only trying them once, once and going, ah, oh, yeah. it's not going to work. With your drawing, you obviously start drawing, but you've set yourself the target of, I'm going to draw every day for 30 days. Do you think there's a benefit to actually doing that more with parenting as well, like picking something you're going to try and then trying it, giving it a good run before you give it up? Yeah, give it a chance. And also almost putting on that detective hat or the, you know, the researcher hat and saying, all right, it didn't work that time, but what else was going on that might have affected it? You know, having come from a um, originally a marine science perspective where, you know, you might do an experiment, but you try and understand the variables that were going on that might have impacted the results that you got. Um, 
I think if parents can kind of take that approach and obviously not necessarily buying a lab coat and getting the carbon copy notepads <laughs> out. Um, but, put it away. Put it away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just being able to kind of say, well, it didn't work that time. I'm not going to throw it out. There were reasons why it didn't work. I'm not sure what those reasons are. It could have been these reasons, so let's try and exclude those. Let's try and set it up for success and see if it works next time. Um, just have a few goes at it rather than just trying it once, ending in a meltdown and throwing it out the window. <laughs> I think that's great advice, Arnie. <laughs> <laughs> it's easy for me to give that advice when I don't have kids. It's like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, try this. <laughs> like, you know was it, I, I used to be a great parent until I became a parent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, I think that's wonderful. I definitely uh, like taking that on board because it's so tempting to go, yeah, I've just heard this great thing to try with, you know, with, with the family. And you try once, there is a meltdown. You're like, yeah. that sucks. <laughs> Never doing that again. So yeah. The whole family threw their dinner plates at me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, although that that probably might be a good cue to say, yeah, this one's not going to work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Or it's gonna need Everyone one. hated it. <laughs> yeah. Need, need a, at least an accountability buddy to keep that one on track. <laughs> but um, thanks ever so much, Johnny. It's been um, really informational for for me, and uh, and I hope that I'm sure the listeners uh, take a, a lot away from that as well. So I appreciate you taking the time out. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time to catch up. I've enjoyed it. Loved it. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Arnie. If you'd like to see the drawings Arnie publishes, his Instagram account is underscore Arn underscore dog underscore. And I'll be doing the penury challenge with him. Let me know if you're interested too. I'll put all the links to this on the website. Now, before you go, I'd really appreciate it if you could take a minute to give the show a review on whatever platform you consume your podcasts on, be that iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or one of the others. I really love hearing that people are enjoying the show. And to be honest, it gives me a massive buzz. Also, if you know anyone that you think would appreciate the podcast, if you could share it with them, that would be a huge help. If you have any questions or want to reach out to me, my email is rich at thedadmindset.com. Hope you have a great week. And in the meantime, enjoy your caffeinated beverage. Ha, 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 ha.